Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. Thank you so much to all of you who have been involved in our Christmas season, who have volunteered in uh, Christmas services, and those of you who came to our Glendora campus for the first time. Uh, And uh, I wanna especially thank you all for, for praying over our preschool and for caring for our preschool. It's so neat that we've been able to be involved in the lives of, there's 100 families over there with kids in the preschool. And one of our families that lit the Advent candle here on a Sunday was from the preschool. And I baptized a family of five last weekend, and they're a family that goes to our preschool. So it's a, it's, I'm so thankful that we've been able to be involved in the community through this new preschool uh, that was given to us. So thank you for praying over it and blessing it. Thank you for those of you who went and decorated it for Christmas. Uh, and if you happen to have the spiritual gift of taking down Christmas decorations, we need your spiritual gift in the next couple weeks so that we can restore order to the preschool. Uh, but but thank you for caring for it. Keep, keep the preschool in prayer. It's doing great. We're very thankful for it. Keep it in prayer uh, because it will be an amazing opportunity for us to preach the gospel to a new generation that's going to grow up remembering that they learned about Jesus in the real life preschool. So keep, the, keep that in your prayers. Let's, uh, let's pray together today. Lord, I thank you that you love us. And I thank you that you, you walked the earth so that we would know you. And as you walked the earth, you claimed souls for yourself. You claimed hearts as you loved people and healed people and taught them the truth. And we want to expand your kingdom spiritually and physically. We want our hearts to belong to your family and your community and your kingdom. And we want the ground beneath our feet to belong to your kingdom. So use our lives for your holy purposes. Call us to mission and ministry, to sacrifice and to service. Call us to love the world in Jesus' name and show us where you want us to go. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I saw something interesting in the news recently. I didn't realize this was going on. There's a a city in Michigan called Hamtrak, Michigan, and they are the first city in the United States of America to have a completely Muslim city government. Their city officials are all Muslim. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I think a lot of people look at that and think that's a kind of cute, diverse, woke kind of thing that America can be so uh, diverse. Uh, And and that's fine and good. But I'm aware of the the broader mindset entrenched in Islam and in the Quran and in Muslim countries today, in countries that are predominantly Muslim, countries in the the Middle East and in Southeast Asia, where the the majority, the overwhelming majority of the country is Muslim, better than 75% of those uh, countries, better than 75% of the population believes that the country should be ruled over by what's called Sharia law, which is law dictated by the Quran. And among other things, some of the dictates of the Quran involve really severe physical punishment for crimes. I mean, it's, it's a very different kind of legal system than what you're used to if you've lived your life in the United States. And in those countries, there's, there's often a belief, uh, and I think this is far-fetched, I don't think this could happen, but there's, there's a belief, a hope, that all of Islam could be united under a single leader, which they call a caliph. 
and, and that they would have a, what's, what they call a caliphate. And that that would be a single Muslim government ruling over all the Muslim countries of the world. And that that, that kingdom would then expand, that one day the world would be ruled over by Sharia law and the Quran. Uh, and, you know, most Muslims in America, I think, do not hope for that or, or wish for that. And I think there's a significant population, even in Muslim countries, that don't want that. And I don't think it's a, a realistic possibility. But realize there's a population out there which is of a different religion than you, if you follow Jesus, who believes that your religion is wrong and who hopes that one day a, a legal system governs the world in which it's illegal to convert to Christianity. Now, I don't say that to demonize Muslims because there are people in the world who believe that the Pope should be the leader of the whole world or that we should restore a holy Roman emperor like the days of the, the Middle Ages where some Christian leader rules the world. And, you know, there's just kind of a thirst for power that runs through humanity that's not particularly good. I wouldn't demonize any one particular group for that because I think we're all guilty of it. What I mean to call attention to is the fact that there are people out there who believe in taking territory. And when I hear that a city in the United States of America has become a fully Muslim city council, it gives me pause to wonder about the taking of territories. We can go, oh, come on, pastor, don't, don't worry. My wife is worried enough. I don't need to hear about all that. You're just one of those panicked, crazy preachers who just wants to stir people up. It's not that at all. It's that I realize that if we're apathetic about territories, there are people out there who are not apathetic. And territories are shifting while we sit in our apathy. There's a, um, there's a, a board game uh, called Othello that uh, I love to play. I don't, I don't like a lot of board games. It's one of the ones that I really like. And you put colored discs on a, on a, on a table, on a grid, and one person is the blue team and one person is the red team, and each of the chips is blue on one side and red on the other. And if you surround another person's line of chips, you flip all of their colors over to your color, and all their chips become your chips. You've claimed their territory. They get five in a row, and you get one on either side, and those five flip and become yours. Well, what if there's a spiritual taking of territory going on in our world? Where people's hearts belong either to the kingdom of God or to the kingdom of this world. And those two kingdoms are in competition to turn people over, to, turn, to take spiritual territory, either for the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of this world. Well, I say what if, but that's actually what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is a, a spiritual taking of territory and no human soul is neutral. You can be apathetic, but that doesn't mean you haven't been claimed. I want us in this series of teachings now called Territories to think about the taking of territories, spiritual and physical, not in a scary way, in an optimistic way, because we believe in the God of the universe who walked the earth as the Messiah, who died on the cross to save us, and who now calls us to surrender our lives to him, making our hearts part of the territory that he has claimed on the earth. And as we commit ourselves to Jesus and love other people in his name, love friends, love strangers, love enemies, as we love people in his name, his love claims territory in this world. And that's not a scary thing. That's not even a competitive thing. That's a beautiful thing. And it's how the world is supposed to be.
I want to I want to look at uh, uh, the taking of territories over the next few weeks, and as we do so, starting. Tomorrow, Monday the 10th, we're going to begin a 21-day fast together as a church. And as we do that, we're going to pray that God's kingdom would expand. That God's kingdom would expand physically and spiritually. We're going to fast for 21 days as Daniel did uh, in the book of Daniel. Uh, What is a fast? A fast is abstaining from something for a set period of time to dedicate oneself to prayer. Traditionally, when you think of fasting, you think about abstaining from food for a day to pray. Uh, Given people's dietary restrictions and health issues and so forth, food isn't always the best option. I know people who fast from social media, and a lot of us appreciate it when they do. Uh, I know people who fast just from caffeine or dessert, and we stay away from those people because they're grouchy while they're fasting. Uh, But you can fast from anything to dedicate yourself to prayer. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, fasted for 21 days from all the rich foods of Babylon and basically just dedicated himself to fruit and vegetables. And so we're beginning a 21-day fast starting tomorrow, Monday the 10th, in which we're going to fast for 21 days. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm going to abstain three days from food, just drink water, and then progress into a 21-day Daniel fast. And I encourage you over the next 21 days to pray about what you'd fast from. Maybe, Maybe you'll take on a Daniel fast and just eat fruit and vegetables or fast from social media or coffee or something like that. And then commit yourself to prayer. And every time you crave that thing you're fasting from, stop and pray and ask God to expand his kingdom in your life, to expand his kingdom spiritually and physically in your world. And and watch what happens as we do that together. I will not be surprised if in the midst of this fast, we watch Jesus claim territory for himself that we had never seen before. I won't be surprised if we hear stories of miracles of healing, if we see stories of financial provision, because God promises to bless us as we commit ourselves to him. Today, I want to look at a text that'll talk about fasting as well as a couple of other spiritual disciplines in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 is actually a, a, a powerful passage not only for its content, but for its structure. I'd never seen this before, but if you look at Matthew 6, there's a fascinating repeated phrase that happens in the text that that governs the chapter, and it's a powerful chapter. And I I love it when I read the Bible and I see things that I've never seen before. So today I want to look at Matthew chapter 6 together. Uh, And as we do, uh, we're going to talk about the disciplines that Jesus calls us to. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 1. When you give, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus says, when you give, not if you give. But a lot of Christians that I know are living an if faith instead of a when faith. And that affects your spiritual life. A lot of us are like an appliance that's not 
that's not plugged in. When you don't know Jesus, when you're not living life for its design, you're, you're not plugged into the source of power. You're just a, a vacuum cleaner that can't turn on. And I want us to, to first to plug in. I want us to commit ourselves to Jesus. If you've never tried this before, if you've never done that, step over the line today and say, Jesus, I want to see what life on your terms is like. Come into my life. Forgive what I've done before and set me free to new life. Start there. And, and if you're a Christian, you've already done that. You've already plugged in. But, but then a lot of Christians I know are plugged in. They know Jesus, but they're never turned on. They never access the power that he gives to them. And I have to be careful about what I say as a pastor because I, I know a lot of people out there like to extract little tiny quotes that people say and put them all over YouTube and social media. But what I'm trying to say today is that I, as your pastor, want to turn you on to the power that God has placed inside of you. Because a lot of us are just appliances that are plugged in and we're not turned on. We, we have kind of a, a boring spiritual life. Jesus is on the back burner. Yeah, we committed to him a while ago. And if somebody asked us today, we'd say we believe in him, but we're not doing anything with it. Or some people are plugged in and they're turned on. But this is, I think, the bulk of Christians in America today. Somehow we've decided that we're best on a low setting. We've plugged in and we're turned on low. You know, we, we like Jesus for, for the moral teachings. He, he's making us a better person. And we've seen some of that. And we really like that. And we like Jesus for the way he teaches us to love other people. And he's improving our relationships. And we've seen some of that. And we like the promise that we get to go to heaven in the end. But that's it. That's as far as it goes. And that's us functioning on a low setting. Look at what Jesus actually teaches. Jesus says in the gospel of Mark, whatever you pray for in my name, believe it and you will have it. He literally curses a fig tree and it wilts and dies by the next day. Do you have a spiritual life like that? Or does that sound like eccentric nonsense? At the end of the gospel of Mark, Mark says, here are the signs that will follow the believers. They'll place their hands on the sick and the sick will be healed. They'll cast out demons. They'll speak in different tongues. This is the signs that'll follow people who believe in Jesus and are turned on and haven't settled for the low setting. They've turned up to the high setting. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes an appeal in John 14. And he says, he says if, you, if you have trouble believing in me, at least believe in the miracles. At least believe in what you see me do. And the day will come where you do greater things than these. Feel like you've been doing greater miracles than Jesus lately? Or does that just sound strange? If it sounds strange, it's because American Christianity is largely a plugged-in utility set on low. And we don't experience power. Uh, American Christianity has largely become like the, the hand dryer that you find in most of the old fast food restaurants. You know, there's some, there's some amazing hand dryers today that are super powerful. You turn them on, they dry your hands, they're warm and everything. But the ones that are in the old fast food restaurants, you know what I'm talking about? You, you press the button, you turn it on, and you, you sit there and nothing Nothing happens. It would be faster to dry your hands by going <laughs> like that. Often that's what you end up doing. Why do they even have hand dryers that work that way? That, there's no purpose to that. <laughs> well, a lot of people have an if faith instead of a when faith. Jesus says, when you give, when you believe wholly in the kingdom, when you sacrifice, when you let go of the things of this world the way I've told you to, then I will reward you. Then you'll live with power. Stop living a <laughs> kind of faith. Je Jesus calls us to give. And he doesn't say if you give. He says when you give, don't do it to show off and call attention to yourself. Give because you love God. 
and you love the children of God, and you love the house of God, give because I've given to you. The biblical call to giving is tithing, which is 10%, that we give 10% of our income to building the kingdom of heaven on earth. You know how to calculate 10% yet, right? I don't want to turn this into a math class, but this is how you do 10%. You move the decimal one place to the left, right? If you make $500, tithing is $50. If you make $50,000, tithing is $5,000. That's how tithing works. And that's the biblical call on our lives. According to most surveys out there, most people in America who call themselves devout Christians give 2 to 3% of their income to the church and then expect the church to go and give it to somebody else. We donate to the church and say, well, you better give that to the poor. You better not use that for, you know, the buildings or the air conditioning or anything. You go give that money that I gave you away. The, the biblical call is that we tithe to the house of God, and then if there are poor among us, we feed them out of our own resources. We take them into our own homes. That's the biblical model for how the people of Jesus will function. Most of us give a pittance and say, now the church needs to give it to somebody else. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have it. How unfaithful and unwise. Jesus says, when you give, I will reward you. And the word that he uses for reward here in Greek is mythos. And you know how, you know how words sort of have sort of lean in certain directions? Like you have a word and it can sort of mean this or can sort of mean that. The word reward is a decent translation, but the word reward in English can lean a couple different directions. Reward can feel like a special prize that I give you because I'm really nice. And you did a good job, but I'm the one choosing to give you a reward. Or reward can lead in the direction of a, an expected amount that was promised ahead of time. Almost like a salary, right? If you do this, the reward will be this, this prize. And, and reward can lean more in the direction of an expected amount that was pledged ahead of time. Well, the Greek word mythos actually leans in the direction of a reward that was promised ahead of time. Almost like a salary. That's the word Jesus uses here. When you give, I will give you what I told you I was going to give you. Not because he's an ATM machine, but because he's a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, if you live a win faith, not an if faith, if you really live with your, your heart open to me and do what I've called you to, I will give you what I told you I would give you. I will keep my promises. In, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this and see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven and give you more than you know what to do with. I keep my promises. When you give, I will reward you. Don't do it to show off to people. Do it because you love me. Do it because you know that I know what's best. I have tithed since I was in high school. And uh, uh, God has always been faithful to me. And, and in recent years, like the last three or four years, I did an experiment uh, where I would set out at the beginning of the year in January and figure out what I thought I was going to make that year. Instead of giving 10%, I'd raise it and I'd give 12% or 15%. I'd start out in January budgeting, giving a, what was going to add up to 12 or 15% at the end of the year. And each year, through streams of revenue that I did not expect, my income has increased so that what I thought was going to be 12% actually ended up being 10%. I kid you not, God is very good with the numbers. Not because he's an ATM, but because he's a promise keeper. 
He keeps the promises that he's made to us. Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor who is so confident about God's promises that a time came when I think he was in college at the time and his rent was coming due and he didn't have enough money to pay rent and he was afraid he was gonna get evicted. And he had like $80 left to his name. I kid you not, his name's Jordan and he likes telling this story. He says, I went to church, I gave the whole of the $80 that I had left in my wallet to the church. And then I went outside and I literally yelled up at the sky, you owe me $800. And sure enough, the money came in and he didn't get evicted. Not because God is an ATM machine. God will not be manipulated. God knows our hearts. But God is a promise keeper. And there's way too many Christians out there living on low power because they don't believe in the promises of God. It's time to start living a win faith instead of an if faith. Okay, that's how Matthew 6 begins. And then uh, there's another uh, promise that uh, Jesus calls us to. Uh, another expectation and promise in verse 5. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. See, back in first century Judea, if you were a very religious person, that was a sign of social status. You were well respected in the community if you prayed a lot and prayed loud and prayed in public. And Jesus sees people doing that and knows they're just doing it to call attention to themselves and calls that hypocrisy. They're not being sincere in their prayers. Now, this warning doesn't quite apply to us in the same way living in modern-day Los Angeles County and Southern California because I don't know that you get widely respected for praying in our culture today. I mean, you know, there are certain places, sure, but not by and large. I remember one time uh, praying with a woman. I think it was in a restaurant. We were in some public place, and she said, she said something about something she needed. And I said, well, can I pray for you? And she said, sure. And so I started to pray for her. Pray for her, and she goes, "Oh, you meant you meant now? Oh, you meant you meant out loud?" Because she was used to having people say that they would pray for her, but not ever have anyone actually do it. Jesus is trying to say, "Now, don't don't use prayer to call attention to yourself." I think in in our world today, there, there's far more risk that we just won't bother. Verse six. But when you pray. Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret, what? Will reward you. There it is again. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for, the, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Um, I remember... Uh, meeting an elderly guy many years ago who was going to a church that I was attending. This was before I was a pastor. An elderly guy had gone to church his whole life and he and I were taking a class together at the church. And one time he, he leaned over to me in the class and said, you know, I really don't understand how prayer works. And I remember as a young man being baffled at how somebody could go to church their whole life and never figure out how prayer works. But you know what? I've come to believe that's far more common than I realized at that age. I think a lot of us don't, don't understand what prayer is or, or how it works. We don't, we don't enter into a daily conversation with Jesus, just like he's a friend standing next to us, and just talk to him about whatever's going on in our lives. Not just what we need, but what we expect and hope for and how we feel. He's there. He hears all of that, and he wants to be in that conversation. 
Jesus says, now don't do it to show off, but I, I think the, the concern for us today is often that we just don't do it at all. Uh, imagine, imagine if the doctor treated our health concerns the way most of us treat prayer. We say to people all the time, oh, I'll pray for you. But think about what we do with that. And imagine a doctor doing the same thing. Imagine going to the doctor and saying, oh, oh, I've got these stomach aches. My stomach hurts. Oh, my joints are, I think I've got osteoporosis, arthritis, everything hurts. Oh, my, my feet hurt all the time now and they're swelling and I have, these, I have these migraines. What do I do? Imagine the doctor saying, oh, I hear you, I hear you. How would you like it if later on, after you leave, I think to myself, about what would heal you. I mean, would you go, oh, that's a great idea. Thank you. Hey, send me a bill, all right? Thanks. I, you'd stop seeing that doctor. That's ridiculous. But that's what most of us do with prayer. Hey, I have this need. Oh, okay, well, later on, when you're not here, if I remember, which I probably won't, maybe I'll think about, you know, what would happen, what would happen if I prayed for you. Jesus says, not if you pray, but when you pray. When you live a life of prayer, when you enter into daily conversation with Jesus because you want him deeply intertwined with everything you do, when you pray, I will reward you. And the word for reward here is different. It's not uh, misthos again. Here the word is apodidomai. And this is a brilliant verb. This is beautiful. Here's what the verb means. There's, a, there's another passage in the gospels where Jesus is in the temple. And he takes the scroll of Isaiah out and he reads from it. And then he rolls it up and he goes and he, he puts it back where it belongs, a bookshelf or something. He goes and he puts the scroll back where it belongs. He sets it right again. The word that's used in Greek in that passage is apodidomai. Jesus sets the scroll back right again. When you pray, I will apodidomai you. I will, I will put you back in a right place. Those of you who have a rich prayer life already know exactly what I'm talking about. If that doesn't ring a bell with you, you need to pray more. When you pray, I will set you back right in the world. I will reward you by restoring you. That's the promise of the scriptures. And then there's a third one in Matthew chapter 6. Verse six skip down to verse 16. When you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and sh to show others that they are fasting you. Uh, excuse me. They disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Again, in first century Judea, if you're fasting, you go around calling attention, I am such a spiritual person. Look at me not eating today. Aren't I great? But, I, but, when I, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Use a little product so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will, here it is again, was you, will reward you. And here it's apodidomai again. I will restore you to your right place when you fast. In my own experience of fasting, I find that fasting clarifies my prayer life. And often I have encounters with Jesus that I would not have had otherwise. 
Remember when I was sitting in the front pew of the property here at Valley Center and praying that God would give this property to us. It was on a day that I was fasting. And as I fasted and prayed here, as I was praying, Jesus, will you give this property to us? The phone rang and the bank was calling to say, hey, you're probably not going to have to pay that huge down payment we said because you own another property now. There might not be any down payment at all. It literally happened in the midst of prayer on a day that I was fasting. And it's not because God is an ATM machine. It's because God keeps his promises. And he promises, when you give, I will reward you. When you pray, I will reward you. When you fast, I will reward you. So tomorrow we're going to begin a 21-day fast together as a church. If you've never done it before, give it a try. If you only fast for one day, give it a try. It'd be a shame to go through your whole life and never once do the thing that Jesus says, when you do it, here's how to do it. Not if, when you do it. Don't live an entire life of just going, (laughs) when you fast, here's how to do it. Um, What fasting does is is like uh, when you I go back to this metaphor because I like this one. When you go out at night in front of your house and look up at the sky, you don't see much. The city lights in a great big city like Los Angeles sort of buries the night sky. But if you go out into the desert and look up at the night sky, you see above you a heaven full of lights and moving satellites and shooting stars. You see see an expansion of a beauty that's been hidden from our eyes, though it's there all the time. When we fast, we turn out the distractions of life. We turn out some of the pleasures of life. We turn out things that we normally focus on. And when we do, it opens our eyes to a heaven above us that's full of light and beauty and curiosity and wonder. We're going to begin a fast tomorrow. And we're going to pray that God's kingdom would expand in our lives, in our world. That God would expand his kingdom physically as the church looks to buy property. And spiritually as God seeks to reach lost people in his name. It it would be a shame if the church dived into this spiritual activity and you sat in the bleachers watching from the sidelines. Because I fully expect that when we as a community engage in deep spiritual commitment together, we will see God work among us. I will not be surprised if I hear stories of healings and financial blessings and God transcending to interact with people who have been longing for his presence. What Jesus wants most for us is for us to live day to day in deep relationship and deep engagement with him. And we're going to spend the next 21 days saying, yes, Jesus, more of that. Matthew 6 concludes with the two blessings that come as a result of praying and giving and fasting. Matthew chapter 6 concludes with, when you give, when you sacrifice, great will be your treasure in heaven. God will reward you in the end. And secondly, You'll live a life without worry. Matthew 6 concludes with a passage promising that we don't need to worry. And why should we? 
when we let go of our grip on this world because we trust God so much, there is so much less to worry about. And so, we're about to dive in to a season of spiritual contemplation and prayer and opening ourselves to Jesus and seeking after him. Prepare for this. This fast is going to change your spiritual life and it's going to it's going to rock your 2022. Let's begin. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you are living and active and that you walk this this earth every bit as much today as you did 2000 years ago. So walk into our lives. We open the door to you. We seek you. We ask for more of you. Jesus, in the season that is to come, reveal more of yourself to your people. Change us and transform us. And call us into new territories. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I'll see you again. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.